All right. Last podcast, which was number four in Colossians, was one in which we heard that most scholars feel that Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is a hymn. And it was sung by believers to remind and teach followers of Christ about who Jesus is, what he accomplished of the Father's will, and why he is called the one in whom all things are reconciled. Now, Paul continued in the verses that followed in that podcast, pointing out that the Colossians had come to faith from a background of darkness and really evil deeds. But because of their faith in Christ, they had been presented to the Father God in holiness and in purity and blamelessness and as consecrated ones. And they were firmly placed on the foundation of the finished work of Christ. And as a result, their faith had not been shaken. You know, they were still able to stand and call on his name. The focus of much of that passage we looked at in that podcast dealt with the supremacy of Christ. <clears throat> and he's the one who reigns over all creation because he was, he was begotten, not made. That puts him in first place of all things. In the church, which is described in the Greek word ekklesia, in the marketplace, and in our hearts. So let's pray. Father of mercy, you poured out grace. Lord, that's a song that we sing. It's really familiar to our hearts. Walk around humming that song. And and likewise, we join with our brothers and sisters uh, and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to remind ourselves, to teach ourselves, to bring ourselves up short and go, oh, that's what I need to cover with myself today. Lord, thank you for mercy and grace. We too have been lifted out of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. We honor you, Lord. We long for more of your wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and discernment. As we listen and as we search the scriptures, as we press in and obey, those flow to us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 1, verse 24 is where we're going to start. And this chapter uh, 1, verse 24 is one of the most confusing, complex, misunderstood, written about verses in the New Testament. There have been tomes. There's been thick theological works. You know, that people have tried to build doctrine on this and it doesn't work. You know, they try to write doctoral dissertations and master's theses. And, and, and I, what I want to do is clarify some things for us. So... Um, Paul here is talking about his own sufferings for the sake of the Colossian believers. Uh, and this is Paul's shorthand, if you will, uh, because of the experience he had uh, with Jesus himself on the Damascus Road. If you recall, Saul of Tarsus was causing great suffering in the, amongst the followers of the way, the believers in Jesus in the Jerusalem area. And then he sets off for Damascus. It's listed in Acts chapter 9. And on the way to Damascus, he is knocked out of the saddle. He's just flattened because of the sheer brilliance of this figure in the road. He can see it. He can hear it. No one else can. They just think he's crazy. He's on the ground. He's talking to what he can't see. And, but he's blinded. And in that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus says, Paul, excuse me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That had to just rock him. Because he really had set out to crush everything that had to do with Jesus. 
Here's this living one raised from the dead speaking to him. They have to lead Saul into Damascus by hand because he's blind. And he's settled into a house. And then the Lord goes to a man named Ananias. And Ananias sort of goes, ah, Lord, I really don't want to go see Saul because he's on his way here to do us bad. He's going to do bad things to us. The imprison, torture, death. And, and the Lord says, you go. And when you get there, you lay hands on him because Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In Paul's later letters, in First and Second Corinthians, there's three passages, and I just want to read them out so that you're refreshed in your memory of the sufferings that are written here that were part of, of Paul's experience on his missionary journey. So in 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 13, it says this, For, I think, God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinct, uh, distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed and roughly treated, and are homeless. <clears throat> and we toil, working with our own hands, when we are reviled. We bless, when we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 18 says, <clears throat> We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not despairing. <clears throat> Perplexed, not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. And having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you, for all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. Across the page, he picks up again chapter uh, 6, verse, verse um, 3 to 10. It says, in, in purity, <clears throat> no, excuse me, 3 to 10 giving no cause for offense in anything, in order that the ministry be not discredited, for in everything commending ourselves as servants to God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, 
in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, we live as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. And then finally, late in Second Corinthians in chapter 11, he says this, are they, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I said, of course they are. I more so. So in far more no, in labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and with exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. So when, when Paul says to the Colossians, I've suffered, that's shorthand. There's, there's uh, you know, pages of record of his suffering. <clears throat> and, and here he says, I suffered specifically for you Colossians. Now we know in, this, in the first two and a half centuries of time from A.D. 33 to about 310 A.D., the imperial, uh, the, the leaders of imperial Rome uh, were frequent persecutors of the believers in Christ. Uh, those who came to Jesus understood, I'm giving my life to you, Lord, and there is the distinct possibility it will be shortened. I will be martyred. That was a given in those days, that you come to Christ you, you joyfully gave him all, and that included the length of my days. The same is true today of believers in North Africa, North Korea, China, Cuba, the stands that are spread up the ancient Silk Road, Nigeria, Indonesia, India, Cuba, southern Mexico, and Colombia. To them, to the brothers and sisters who have been grasped by grace, it is worth it to them as well. Research shows that 70 million followers of Jesus have died as martyrs since 33 AD until the year 2000. In the 20th, 20th century, last century, 45 million Christians were killed, largely through war, largely through being marginalized and shoved into, into camps or just set upon in, in genocide. Since 2000, to 2010, first 10 years of this, cent of this century, 100,000 followers of Christ have been martyred. The ostracism, the poverty, family destruction, imprisonment, and torture, those numbers have never been compiled. 
So they vastly exceed the numbers of just death. So our brothers and sisters have and are suffering. Give me some examples. For example, there's a pastor in China who went to the streets to evangelize, and he was arrested, thrown into prison, and he was given cesspool duty. So every day, blazing sun, freezing temperatures, every day he had a bucket, and he stood up to his waist in the cesspool, and he bucketed it out every day. Now, he never got sick. No viral disease, no bacterial disease. I mean, that was a wonder and a, and a, and a sign to everybody in the prison that he could survive that. Now, he did, he did recover. He was restored to his family, but he suffered. Okay? You know the story of Richard Wormbrand, this pastor in Romania, who was taken by the Nazis and tortured fiercely, tortured by the Nazis. And then subsequently, when the, the communists came in behind the Germans... He was further tortured. His feet were so badly beaten that he could not hardly walk. And when he would sit to preach, he had to take his shoes off. His feet were so, so painful. Every month, there's another martyred pastor in Pakistan. Clockwork. But there's more than a million former Muslims who have come to faith in Christ meeting secretly in Pakistan. A suffering church is a growing church. And Paul continues to say that his sufferings are those which are lacking in Christ's afflictions. So this is where it gets confusing. You want to go, whoa there, what? You know, you say, I thought Christ's sufferings were finished having accomplished full atonement and restoration for those who believed in him with the Father. And yes, that's absolutely true. What Paul's saying here is not about opening the way for salvation. He's saying instead that when he suffers for the body of Christ, for ecclesia, for for the body, for the church, Christ suffers with him. The head of the church, Christ, suffers when any other member of the body is suffering. Now, grammar and construction here is jumbled in the Greek text, but within the context here, it clearly points out that when the body suffers, Christ suffers. Then the, the text continues. It says, Paul was made a minister, a servant of the body, and here it's defined as a steward. You know, this isn't, it's, you know, he's not a, He's not a servant. He's a steward. And a steward is what? Steward might match a modern-day, aggressive, godly trustee over some estate or businesses or whatever it is. What the steward did was he took responsibility for resources, possessions, business dealings, harvests. He didn't own any of this. It was just his responsibility to maximize the results. Now here, in other translations, that same Greek word, oikonomion, is expressed as dispensation. Not steward, but dispensation. Four times in Paul's writing, the word dispensation pops up. It's translated that way. So 170 years ago, in England, there's a man named John Nelson Darby. And uh, he was a pastor. He was a pastor of the Brethren denomination. 
and he's a, a, a thinker, a, a theologian, and he began to write out what he perceived to be the right view of what that word dispensation means. <clears throat> so he, he posited the following, that there was a dispensation of innocence that started with the making, the forming of Adam, and that carried from Adam's being shaped out of mud, okay, all the way through to the fall. From the fall to the law of Moses would be called the, uh, the dispensation of conscience. Following that, there was a dispensation of law that lasted from Moses to John the Baptist. And with Christ at this present time, it is described as the dispensation of grace. So that in the church and with believers, we focus on the grace of God, distributing the message of mercy and grace and redemption to the lost. And lastly, Darby presented the dispensation of the messianic kingdom. He, he created a, a different take on what's called eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine of end times things. The prophecies and things that have not yet come to pass. And yet there are multiple views of what is coming. And uh, one of them was this dispensational view. And, and John Nelson Darby believed that the coming of Christ to return to earth and set up his reign in earth for a thousand years. That was going to, about to happen. It was imminent. <clears throat> now, I got raised with that framework, and uh, I dropped it. And the reason why I dropped it was <clears throat> the early church fathers who had either been with Jesus or, or one generation separate from Jesus and were working with the first of the New Testament documents, uh, they had no construct called dispensationalism. They, they, they didn't recognize that word. They didn't treat it that way. They, they treated it as steward. Okay, now you can translate it, dispensation. <clears throat> so I, when I dropped it, I walked away from it. But then I've come lately to appreciate some of the things that dispensational, uh, dispensationalism has highlighted. And, and one of the things that they do is they, they focus on the fact that Old Testament prophecies are to be literal and they will come to pass. They're not just fuzzy thinking by some priest, prophet, whatever it was. One of which was that Israel would be gathered from the nations and reconstituted as a, as a nation. Now, that happened in 1947. That was not, you know, people never believed that was going to come to pass, especially in the church. Because the, 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 the treatment of the Jews as those who rejected Jesus was carried deep into the middle of the, eight, the 19th century. And finally, the dispensational teaching helped correct some of that where they, people began to pray for the Jews and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Additionally, um, dispensationalists talk about specific prophecies and promises that were given to Israel and then to the Jews as a, as a people group and then prayer, uh, uh, promises and prophecies that were given to the church. That, that's helpful. That's helpful to see that in that light. Now, my own studies about the eschatology that, that um, the <clears throat> dispensationalists put out, um, I think is too constricted. It's drawn upon some uh, key phrases and key words and key, key verses, Old Testament, New Testament. And I think there's some compelling new scholarship that talks about uh, the presentation of Christ's return and his rule. That's another sermon, okay? 
Nevertheless, this word dispensation needs to be fit into this discussion out of Colossians. Paul says that this stewardship, this dispensation laid on him by God was so that he might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God specifically to the Gentiles. And a lot of the Colossian believers started that way. They were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. There may have been some, but mostly it would have been a Gentile gathering of believers. And what Paul refers to the to fully preaching the word of God, there follows immediately his pointing out that there's a mystery that's been hidden from the ages past. It's never been revealed to mankind. And now, in Christ, there's this mystery that God has revealed through his son. And that mystery is... Um, that God, before time, had chosen to make of the follower, excuse me, the, the sons and daughters of Abraham, he would gather that family and he would with them create the nation of Israel, his people. And then, at an appropriate time, the Gentiles would become sons and daughters of the king. Now, the latter part was an appalling thing for Jews to even consider. How could Gentiles relate to this, their God? Now, for the Gentiles, it is stated clearly in the text here, Paul says, by Holy Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God in his infinite wisdom gathered up all mankind and, and started salvation history. But then at a certain point in time, he bypasses the Jews and sweeps in a huge harvest of Gentiles. And here we are, some of them, okay? Some of us have Jewish roots, praise God. But, you know, there's, there are many, many millions and millions more Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ. <clears throat> now, Paul includes the Colossians in the we statement at the beginning of verse 28. Uh, he says, we proclaim him, the one who is in me, the hope of glory. Well, he's including the Colossians, and he's including Forge Church when he does that. He says, we're all enlisted as proclaimers. Paul says, we do that when we warn every man and we teach every man with all wisdom that we, Paul, the Colossians, Forge Church, may present every man perfect complete, mature in Christ. Every woman, perfect, complete, mature in Christ. Every child, eventually, perfect, mature, complete in Christ. That's what Paul is laboring towards. That's what he's striving towards. He uses, he uses a word out of the, the then current Olympic Games in Greece. The word was agon, because he would watch and he heard that these athletes would would strain in training. They would, they, would, they would push themselves to a point of collapse. And if they happened to be grappling, wrestling, you know, they, 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 they threw their whole 110% into it. And if they were passed in a race, they would just turn it up a notch and try and pass the other guy in the race. Okay, all that comes from that word agon. And we got our word agony from that word. Okay, and Paul says, I'm striving that every man become mature. I'm striving with the power of God in Christ that mightily works in me. <clears throat> Here, 
There's no chapter break. Chapter 2, the the text continues right on. Chapter breaks and verses were inserted by text editors when they got around to publishing the Bible because they were publishing the Bible for people who were largely illiterate and they were trying to help them understand the flow of Scripture. And, oh, I could memorize that, and so I want to do it in little snippets, verses 1, 2, 3, 4. I get that down. Okay, the text doesn't stop here. It flows right out of chapter 1 into chapter 2. Okay, and Paul continues to speak of what a great struggle he is having on behalf of the Colossians and the Laodiceans and any other believers in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor, a thousand miles to his east. And, and these people haven't seen him. They don't know him. You know, he's never, he never planted that church. It was Epaphras and, and Onesimus who, who helped plant those churches there. Now his battle on behalf of them is in the heavenlies. It's in prayer. All right, if you want a, a picture of what that battle might look like, you go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is praying for the, the Israel, Israelites, the Jews, to be released from Babylon and he prays for 21 days, and there's a fierce fight going on in the heavenlies between the prince of Persia, a demon, a prince of demons, and uh, Gabriel. And finally, Gabriel breaks through and comes and says, I heard your prayer. Your prayer's been heard. You know, now comes breakthrough. So Paul, likewise, every time he lifts his hands to pray for the Colossians, there's a battle, and the enemy pushes back. <clears throat> Paul, who's never seen the faces of these believers, desires that their hearts may be encouraged, comforted, and confirmed. Since they were knit together, they, they fit together, they coalesce together around the love of God, this agape love. They were brothers and sisters together. Now, when they did that, it resulted in wealth and resources of the full assurance of understanding. And further, it results in full knowledge of the mystery of God. God was doing something in their midst. And it was exciting to Paul. And this mystery that had been released was that God loved Gentiles too. That, that was earth shattering. Because they'd been told all their lives, every time they're around Jews, you are dogs. You're filthy. You know, we want nothing to do with you. You know, you can't come into my home. You know, I might be able to do business with you if there's enough physical space between us, etc., Now, this same God that loves the Jews loves the Gentiles. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, some of these treasures were revealed through Paul and the apostles. We're grateful for that because we have a record of it. Some of those treasures of wisdom and knowledge are still waiting to be revealed to us and to our children in these days. He's not done yet. It's called progressive revelation. You know, we press in, we obey, we listen, and we go, that's new. Okay? The apostle is speaking about these hidden things of God so that there uh, is a great expectation and that none of the Colossians or other readers, that's us, be swept into a delusion by persuasive argument. So what is a delusion? A delusion, at its most innocent, hmm, is, a, is a misapprehension, a mistaken belief. Uh, it's a, a false impression, a false belief system. That's at, it, at its most innocent. When it's really virul, you know, virulent and it's really at its 
back-end stages, that false belief becomes controlling. So let's pause. When Satan, <clears throat> excuse me, when Lucifer, Lucifer was cast out of heaven, became Satan. Prior to that, he had been the worship leader in heaven. He had great authority and great beauty, but he aspired to be to sit on the throne. He aspired to surpass God. And there was war in heaven, and a third of the angels fell with Lucifer. He became Satan, and those fallen angels became demons. You want to chase that through the scriptures? It's there. Okay? The essence of Satan and demonic control, uh, uh, demonic uh, entities, is control. Every form of witchcraft globally has as its core value control. So when delusion becomes controlling, it begins to exclude all facts, all reality, and all rational arguments. And it leads to mental disorders. You know what paranoia is? Paranoia is desperate, crushing fear that something there is going to harm me. And it isn't true. Okay? So you run across someone with paranoia. They're under the control of, of a false statement of, and likely some demonic influence. Okay? <clears throat> some in Colossae had been driven to consider... You know, you get hurt. You know, people get hurt in church. It's true. Okay? It's a given. Okay? And, and some were just curious. They were, they were drawn toward these, these arguments that said, oh, well, you know, to have a higher spiritual life, you have to have higher knowledge. Or if you want to have a higher uh, experience, an angel encounter, that will lift your experience. That will lift your spirituality. Or maybe they, you know, they sort of stumbled toward the syncretic mix of the, the um, Phrygian mysticism. Okay, that was, uh, th those are the Greek mystery religions, if you will. It was done in darkness. It was done with a secret handshake, uh, the password. You know, you were initiated and you were sworn to silence. That style of secret society carried right through into the modern world and probably is most clearly seen in, in the form of masonry. Much the same sort of patterns. Much the same sort of delusions. Okay? But some people in Colossae were sort of looking at that. They were considering that. Okay? And Paul says that wisdom and knowledge of God in Christ will push back against such delusions by Holy Spirit. Now Paul concludes this section in, in uh, chapter 2 verse 5 with a statement that even though he is not physically present with the Colossians, he is spiritually present. He's with them. Paul did not rely only on the report that came to him from Epaphroditus, who came the thousand miles and delivered the report and gave the testimonies, and, and there was laughter and joy. But Paul says, I am with you in Colossae. So he knows and he sees and he feels what's going on with them because he's present with them by Holy Spirit. So you might shrug and say, well, he was an apostle. Of course he had the ability to do supernatural stuff. <clears throat> Philip was not an apostle. Philip, okay, was moved by Holy Spirit. He was transported from Samaria to the Gaza Road, and there he stands and waits until the Ethiopian eunuch rolls by in a chariot trying to make sense of the Isaiah text, the Isaiah scroll. 
Okay? So this spiritual presence is available to those who rely on Holy Spirit in intercession for other saints who are suffering. And perhaps even for the lost. You want to target somebody and you're going to intercede for somebody who is just definitely lost. Fine. God may put you into his, the presence of that lost one so you can see and know what to pray for. So you can hear and know what to pray for, etc. <clears throat> now, I know one here in Forge who was translated from here to a refugee camp in Iraq. And there were women in that refugee camp who had been, had been hounded and hunted by ISIS. They loved Jesus, but they were grieving their losses. And this one was with them, put their arm around them, prayed for them, and then suddenly found themselves back in San Mateo County, sitting in their home with an open Bible in their lap. <clears throat> that spiritual coming alongside <clears throat> is passion and compassion poured out in Jesus' name for the suffering ones in our greater family. That's what Paul is describing. And again, for the third time, Paul expresses joy in discovery that the Colossian believers are seen. He can see it. He senses it. He knows it firsthand that they're standing in battle array. They're locked in. <clears throat> they joined themselves and they've stabilized themselves in their faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> okay, family. Now, are there false teachings out there? Absolutely. Are there experiences that get touted as elevating in your spiritual life? Yes. So how do we discern what is God and what is delusion? First, what does the whole counsel of Scripture say? You don't just pick a verse from Isaiah and one from Timothy and one from Philemon. And, you, know, you don't build a case for yourself with proof texts. You use what the Word of God says. <clears throat> Second, what fruit is being born so that you can observe fruit of the Spirit or deeds of the flesh? Stand back and observe. What's really happening in the lives of people who claim the stuff? Okay? And thirdly, um, we know that the kingdom of God produces righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What evidence is seen in the lives of those who are seeking higher knowledge, spiritual encounters, some ecstatic experience, you know, that they, are, that they claim that they're living in the kingdom of God, but you're saying, let's talk about this, because how you're living doesn't match Scripture, doesn't match what Holy Spirit is teaching. <clears throat> so the buffer for us is we, can we may seek to understand them, we may seek to pray for them, we can be genuinely concerned for their souls. We may not judge them. Not your job. You know, that's above your pay grade. You know, the Lord God himself is the one who's going to deal with them personally. <clears throat> now, God Almighty has done a work in you. And he longs to, keep, to, to reach through us to others who are out there and deluded. Okay. So... Uh, we pray to that end and we guard ourselves from delusion. We repent when we're off the path and we follow Jesus by Holy Spirit for the direction of our footsteps. Now, the Lord's given us here in our midst some who have a passion for children, some for a, a select community of people that they relate to, some for the lost, some for the elderly, um, some for our neighbors or classmates. 
you know, those are what, you know, when you go to pray, boom, they're right there. That's, you know, that's what you're bringing before the Lord. And uh, it, it has uh, been known that some of us labor to exhaustion with those callings on our lives and our hearts. And then it becomes our privilege at Forge to come under and to lift, to pray, to support financially if appropriate, to, um, to help in large and small ways. As far as the suffering church, uh, we need reminding here in the West that uh, we live in a bubble where there's really very little persecution that falls on us. Yes, there are some who uh, uh, take a moral stand and they get dragged through the courts or they get pilloried in the press or in the media. And yes, there are some who speak openly of their faith and get marginalized, fired, demoted, etc. One of my sons has been very out there on social media, and he regularly posts preaching bits, uh, experiences in the Holy Spirit, you know, lessons from the Word of God, new, new worship songs that he's written. And as a result of that, he has been turned down for employment over and over because uh, when hiring forces, hiring people, hiring authorities in these large businesses, they, the first thing they look at is your presence on social media. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you can expect in the Bay Area now that uh, you will be picked up and cast aside with some bitter words. That's been my son's experience. So there is a wave, okay, there is a wall that stands against the gospel in America. If, and I leave it as an if, okay, if we intentionally live below the radar where we can dodge oppression and persecution where we keep our mouth shut we don't live openly we kind of keep it quiet with the neighbors if we intentionally do that i don't think we can expect the lord to hear our prayers or heal our diseases or to bless our lives i think we're coming to a season where uh, that option is no longer open to us i don't think it was ever open to us but more so now, just because persecution is there. Uh, those on the other side of the wall are those that Jesus died for, and he loves them too. He loved you and brought you into his presence, and he wants to work through you, work through us, to see those who don't have a clue about the finished work of Christ. He wants them to come and be filled with Christ in you, the hope of glory. So for us, my encouragement to you is put that on. Wear that every day. Stick it on the mirror. Stick it on your visor in your car. You know, put it on an audio memo thing that you listen to. It says Christ in you, the hope of glory. Put it on. Wear it for his name's sake. Let's pray. Father of lights, you give good gifts. We ask you for a heart for the lost, for the oppressors whom you love hard for us to love them, Lord. You love them. Clothe us with the hope of glory that we may exhibit Christ in us and give us ready answers for those who do not yet love and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.